This show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at Altizen.com. A-L-T-I-Z-E-N.com. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. In this episode, I speak to Ben Beheren from Creative Strategies and Tech Pinions on the two-part episode on the impact of Google I.O. and Apple WWDC 2017 on Asia. In the first part, we discuss the major announcements on Google I.O. 2017, specifically Android's problems with Asia OEMs and whether any Asia OEM might acquire Andy Rubin's high-end phone. Hi, Ben. Hey, Bernard. How are you? I'm good. Recently, I had dinner with Horace Studio. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, it's been a long time, but I'm glad to be talking to you again. Yes, and I haven't spoken to you for a while too. And I'm talking to Ben Beharin from Creative Strategies and of course Tech Pinions and his podcast has always been pretty interesting. So Ben, since our last conversation, what have you been up to? Well, it's been a, a very busy time in the Valley and we've had a number of events happening. We've had Google I.O., we've had actually Microsoft Build and we've had Apple's WWDC. So from developer season, it's been a very busy, busy, busy season. So I've been attending those events. I've been doing meetings meetings over around them with a lot of our clients and a lot of industry folks. So it's been interesting lead up into our summer here. But yeah, event season has been occupying the bulk of my time. So the event season is actually dying down now, right? I think we've also been to the E3 conference recently. Yeah, I think conference season has definitely been, you know, the theme of lead up to summer. So we're happy that that's over. And now it's just down to, to still sort of sifting through all the information and starting to move that out into what the things that we publish or stuff that our clients need and things like that. So summer's a nice break, but it's going to get crazy again in the fall. So and the reason why I got you here today is actually to talk about two topics, I think is going to break into two episodes. One is definitely on Google I.O. and the other one is on Apple WWDC. And I think it's good that we do this a month or two after because we can now sit down and think about some of the announcements that's made and what is this impact to the global markets and even specifically to Asia where, where I lived. So I'm going to start off first with Google I.O. 2017. As a very quick summary, what are the key announcements from Google I.O. this year? Well, I think that more than just the announcements, I think the overall theme was sort of more important to understand because, you know, Google is continuing to more aggressively position themselves as machine learning experts or, you know, if you will, the sort of destination in all things for machine learning. And I think Google's mission, as Sundar and others have said, is really to just organize the world's information. And with that, you know, they're, they're bringing machine learning into that. In fact, it's, it's interesting. I think you and I have talked about machine learning before. And, and really, that term and that theme is, is really just the evolution of a theme before it that we heard a lot called big data. And the big question with big data was always you're collecting millions upon millions upon millions of data points from sensors, from user information, etc. The question was always, you know, what do you do with that? How are you going to do that? analytics was sort of the predominant theme. You're going to do it with analytics. And that was a very vague term because, you know, again, how do you interpret that information? What are you looking at when you're just simply analyzing data? And machine learning is sort of the evolution of that that says, well, you're going to make, you know, you're going to develop algorithms that take that data and then make it useful for you. So in essence, this machine that gets a little bit smarter will start to take data and add its own sort of interpretations or surface information that you that you need to know and use this information and make it a bit more intelligent. So machine learning 
evolution of just, again, big data and analytics, I think, is a key trend. But Google fits really nice into that because, you know, again, Google has a lot of endpoints, whether that's search, whether that's Android devices, and, and they're continuing to, to spread their reach into other areas as well, both on the server side and, and on the client side. And so for them, you know, this machine learning theme fits really well in, in kind of their overall ambitions to just organize the world's data. And that's where I think that they're they're really positioning themselves at, at, a, at a center point here so that they can build back-end server infrastructure, they can build cloud software, they can take the TensorFlow software and evolve that and, and use machine learning and it will again evolve into artificial intelligence in, in some capacity to, to really bring more value to the information that you want from Google. So that if you want to find something, if you're interested in any number of things that require information that Google has, that they can surface it and bring it to you in, in more relevant ways. So that theme at the center point impacts everything that they're trying to do on devices like smartphones, like, you know, VR headsets or augmented reality or, or any of the things that even autonomous cars, because all of that stuff requires information. And to some degree, it doesn't just require information, it requires, you know, making sense of that information. That I think at a high level from a theme standpoint, really filtered down into all of the announcements that they made, because you did see some modifications to Android, you know, bringing Assistant into more Android phones is again, it's it's the evolution of, of that theme so that you have a smart, you know, Assistant on your device device that can help you get, acquire, and make sense of any bit of information that you want that, that Google's collecting. You know, VR and AR will become big parts of this as well. And even all the things that are going on the back end server side, because Google's really trying to step up their competition with Microsoft and Amazon on the, uh, on the cloud side doing a lot of really interesting things around you know what they're doing with their, their cloud solutions and server backend. So I, I think at a high level, those themes dictate the announcements that they made for the endpoints and on the server side. And that was kind of my big takeaway from Google is just how they're, they're entrenching themselves as you know, this this leading player in machine learning, which again makes sense in light of their their vision to to organize the world's information. There's a lot more things going on with Android now reaching about two billion monthly active devices this year. For me, it's pretty interesting because I think there was not much major revolution on the latest version of Android announced in the Google I.O. So what I want to ask is, where is the growth opportunity for Android? And given the fragmentation, how are they going to monetize where most of the Android OEMs that are living in Asia don't actually make a lot of profits as compared to Samsung in the emerging markets? Yeah, this is an interesting question in, in a couple of different ways. And a number of OEMs we've talked to are sort of struggling with this because honestly, and this might sound somewhat controversial, but the reality is that it feels like Google has to some degree moved on from Android. I think Android served quite a number of purposes for Google. You know, I don't think that it's, again, it's not something that they're shutting down, don't, don't get me wrong, but it's something where I believe their priorities are shifting from all of the leading innovations that they were trying to push on Android and those priorities are moving to other things. And we know a lot of OEMs who are frustrated with them because the the support that they're getting, the sort of roadmap conversations that they're having, they're, they're getting really frustrated because they're they again they're not really sure, you know, really where or how much Google is is investing in that platform versus what they're doing on the cloud side that again can span many many different operating systems. It's not just Android dependent. And so Google needs reach. And yes, you know, the Android handsets or Android 
Android as a platform is in the hands of, you know, 2 billion people and that'll someday move to three, et cetera. But again, th- those are mostly low value customers. And, and that's always been one of the big challenges for Google. So I think that they've sort of reached this point where, yes, Android's going to continue to grow. But in terms of Google's investment in it, that has already reached its peak and it might even be sort of declining. And so so the question then is, if you're an OEM, if you're, you know, not just an OEM, I mean, honestly, if you're if you're Qualcomm, right? This is a great example, right? And to the fragmentation uh, point that you that you made, like this is going to be a real problem for augmented reality, for example, right? And we'll talk about what Apple did with that and why AR kit's a big deal. But Android's going to lag in that for some time, if if not for a really long time. And part of that again has to do with just would have to support that system, that broader ecosystem to enable very, very little fragmentation because that's what's going to bite a augmented reality on, on Android badly. Now, on the other hand, Qualcomm has an opportunity to sort of the, take the reins on this and do a lot of software work, and they're probably going to do a lot of software work and bring their own SDKs that are different than Androids and bring their own APIs for Qualcomm handsets that are different than Androids so that developers can, can manage that fragmentation. So what we're seeing is the OEMs and, and in this case, providers like Qualcomm are starting to take a little bit more of the reins because they even feel the same way that, that Google's kind of not driving it the same way that they used to. And, and, and if they want to have any hope in differentiating their handsets or competing really with iOS, they need to do some of this on their own. And that, that's a big change than a couple of years ago. But from all of my conversations with the vendors, the OEMs, you know, the component guys, that's really the sense that they're getting. And that's going to create a, a problem. That's going to create a challenge when again you've got Apple on the other side continuing to move forward, move forward aggressively, not deal Dealing with the fragmentation issues that they have and having, you know, soon to be a billion customers of, of iOS that are very high value customers where all the development is focused. So I'm a little bit, you know, concerned when it comes to Android that we're just, the, the, let's just say the innovation gap in software is going to continue to grow. I mean, I think several years ago, it definitely hit a fork and they started splitting in two different directions. And I'm just concerned that that's continuing. The gap is continuing to widen and that's going to hurt a lot of other players in that ecosystem who, though, again, like I said, are trying to take the reins of Android by their own, you know, by their own ambitions and try to drive it in ways that meet them. And, and they're doing that separate from Google. Given that there is this kind of network effects for the two dual OSs, I'm talking about Android and iOS, do you foresee that if Google doesn't do a lot more work on Android, you could foresee a situation where another OS would come into to replace them? Or is it just already too late? No, there's not going to be a replacement. I, I just think that, you know, again, it, it comes back to there. It just comes back to there's going to be, I think we are on a path where there's just going to be a very big gap between what you get in iOS in terms of lean hardware, again, augmented reality, all these really interesting things that we're going to, there's, there's just going to be a very big gap. People, you know, who don't need all of that stuff, who don't, you know, sort of want to have software that does kind of all these new things and, and, and pushes us forward in terms of computing, it's fine, right? That, that's, again, that's not everybody on the planet, right? If you're in rural India, or if you're in rural Africa, you're, you're getting on the internet, you're using social media, you're learning, like your needs may or may not be the same way. So I'm just saying that there's going to be a gap that Android's not going to be replaced anytime soon, if if really ever. It's just that I just don't think you're just not going to see the same kind of software innovation, you're not going to see the same kind of computing capabilities and that gap's just going to widen, unfortunately. And, and the bummer is that that's going to impact folks like Samsung 
even Huawei and, you know, to some degree, Vivo and Oppo, as they try to, you know, to, to increase their ASPs and move slightly into the more semi-premium segments, it's like that's going to hurt them if they do all this great hardware innovation to enable something like, again, augmented reality, for example, but the platforms just has a terrible experience with it, right? And so that that's going to be a challenge for them, even on the high end on Android, because again, it's the high end of Android is constantly bitten by the low end problem that they have because developers develop for the lowest common denominator, which means that in mass, anybody that's writing Android software is essentially thinking, I need to make this work on a $80 smartphone. And that's going to impact the experience even on something that's a $700 smartphone because that developer is really trying to make sure that it still works on an $80 smartphone. And that's a really, really hard problem. That In that case, the software is going to suffer. So in Google I.O. 2017, the Google Assistant will go to iOS. Does that mean Google's strategy now is just to distribute their service across all platforms agnostically? And will you see a situation where Google might find a way into other platforms, for example, the Amazon Echo? If you just come at this from a business model standpoint, right, Google needs reach. Everything that they do needs to try to be everywhere on the planet, right? So they have to have reach. And so the question has always been, you know, yes, they've got 2 billion slash 3 billion, you know, someday Android devices, and that's great reach. But they're also not, you know, how relevant are they on, call it, right, a billion other smartphones in iOS, right? They, those are still valuable users that they want. Or to some degree, wherever Amazon goes in terms of smart home, right? And eventually when you connect X number of homes, like Google doesn't want to be left out of that. So they've always been a, a more horizontal player in that they want their services to work on all of these different things. Now, again, if you're Apple or if you're, you know, Amazon, you may not want Google taking some of your business or some of your customers so you lock them out in certain areas, but you still might give them access to your platform. It's just limited. So Google's just going to have to deal with the reality that, yeah, they might plug some way into Amazon's system and as they do with iOS today, but it's very limited. It's not the same. That's a strategy that they have to balance within their reach. And so their goal will always be to do that. Their goal will always be to be as wide and deep as possible. It's just that, you know, again, uh, this sort of phrase I've been using with people that we talk to is that platforms are the new conglomerates. Platforms control so much of the ecosystem in which they're playing. And so they can dictate who plays in that and who doesn't and to what degree. And the, and the reality is that, yes, Google's a platform. Amazon is emerging now as, again, as a, as a much bigger platform than I think many, many people speculated years ago. iOS is a platform. Windows is a platform. So you sort of have these four really big, powerful platforms. And Facebook might be there as well, but not to the same degree that, that those three are or four are. And so th that's Google has to work within other platforms, which again, who are their own conglomerates? And they, they just don't dictate the terms of how their services are used. So that's the balance they're going to have. Absolutely. They're going to want to say, hey, you know, Alexa, you know, Amazon, if you need Alexa to search, Maybe it's better to use us than Microsoft Bing because we're better, right? And how that relationship gets worked, I, I'm not sure. But those are the trade-offs that everyone's going to have to make when they figure out how they work with other solutions or other assistants or other search or whatever that, that consumers use. Because there does need to be some level of interoperability. But the challenge is just coming back to, like how, again, how does that work when when you're Google and you don't control these other platforms, which again are, are essentially conglomerates. The most interesting announcement to the emerging markets, particularly for Asia, is actually Google Go, where, which they're targeting the next billion. I mean, given they have actually not been successful with Android One, which was something that was announced years before, 
Do you see now with this whole idea of this Google Go, they're actually able to penetrate into emerging markets? Well, the, so again, they were going to penetrate emerging markets no matter what, right? I mean, if you're many different parts of Africa and I mean, you're not, you know, you're buying a phone for 30, 40, 50 bucks, it's going to be an Android phone. The, the challenge, though, is that, you know, at that price point with some of the software challenges that they've had, those are those are pretty poor experiences. They don't want the, you know, the super the, the, the let's just say the emerging market consumer experience to be bad because they do want them to use their software, their services. They want them to stay loyal to to Google services. So so that's been the challenge is that they were always going to do it, but the problem was it was it was really outside of their control. These were terrible customer experiences and Google just wanted to try to try to bring a set of standards, if you will, or a spec that preserved some level of the customer experience so that it did value Google and the customer. And that was a, just a hot mess before. That was what Android Android One tried to solve and now go similarly. But they were going to do it anyway. They just wanted to do it with something they had a little bit more control over because it was really like it was really the Wild West, how the how emerging markets were, were growing with Android. A lot of those were AOSP devices. A lot of those didn't run Google App Store. They ran, ran different apps. It was just all over the place. So Google's just trying to unify that into something that Again, they have a little bit more control over that benefits them and benefits the customers. So one interesting discussion in this Google I.O. 2017 is the new AI chip known as Tensor Processing Unit. And I know you have a lot of expertise in semiconductors. Can you discuss why Google built a new AI chip and how they will use this AI chip into their next stage? Yeah, so the chip itself is kind of an evolution of the TensorFlow TPU that they had, which was really just an accelerator. So if you keep in mind that Google's not necessarily building the core CPUs that some of these devices use on their servers, they're also not building the GPUs. The TensorFlow TPU, TensorFlow Processing Unit, was the first sort of take of their approach to develop, an, again, an accelerator, something that speeds up their, their machine learning processes, something that runs their software more effectively than something like an Intel processor and an NVIDIA GPU. And so this is an evolution of that because there are some CPU components to it. There are some other dedicated accelerators. It'll still sort of work in conjunction with a traditional data center architecture, but it's designed to be something that, again, they'll use in their data center architectures for their cloud server solution that just processes anything like TensorFlow software, other future things that they'll create in terms of the algorithms. And so it's designed to run their machine learning algorithms, their machine learning software better by accelerating bits that you know that may or may not be best run on the CPU or the GPU. And really what this is, is also it's a broader signal of, of a much bigger trend in data center to do this exact thing, which is not just load your data center with an Intel processor and NVIDIA or AMD GPUs, but to, to create these sort of custom accelerator units that, that indeed speed up all of those processes and might run some of that software, that core training algorithms or the inference, which is what asks the question once a network's been trained, to run those on something that's dedicated to, to run them faster is going to speed up both training and it's going to speed up the, the the response that we get when we talk and when we ask questions to our AIs. And so what they're doing is a broader trend. Honestly, I expect 
Microsoft do the same thing. Things I wouldn't be surprised as well start building these sort of dedicated, you know, processing units that are that are specifically designed to run their backends faster by just augmenting what a CPU and a GPU is traditionally doing in a data center and just building these units to make sure that that it just runs more effective, much more faster, and just deliver that much more performance. But they're again they're dedicated designed for that cloud providers back end. And that's that's what they're doing and that's I think a sig- signal of a broader broader industry trend in data center architecture. I want to turn the question into something else, which is actually recently Andy Rubin, the creator of Android, created something called the Essential Phone, running on Android and announced the ambient OS that focuses on the Internet of Things IoT and artificial intelligence in Recode. I agree with what you said mostly on Twitter. Where do you see the premium Android device market will go? And one guess I would actually want to hazard is, will Andy Rubin's company eventually get acquired by one of the Asian OEMs or Chinese companies? Um, yeah, so at a high level, I mean, I think his model is a little bit challenging because, you know, his, his premise was we're going to be unique in the high end because we can we don't need to ship 200 million smartphones a year like someone like like Huawei and or and Samsung and Apple do. And therefore, they're going to be able to go use components or or manufacturing processes, you know, material science that no one else can have because those material science things and whatnot don't scale. So he was talking about using, you know, elements of carbon fiber and some new sort of processes or even like liquid metals, an example of that, just things that cannot be manufactured in the hundreds of millions, but can be manufactured in the few millions. And so his point is, you know, we're going to differentiate our Ourselves by using some of these things, whether it's innovations in display, innovations in liquid metal, or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's going to be what sets them apart. But then, and his similar point was that, well, but we also want to be a company that goes massive scale, right? He said, we're going to shoot for the moon. We want to be everywhere. We want to sell 200 million. So those two statements are sort of counterintuitive because at some point in time, if he does want scale, he's going to have to go back and use the components that scale. Like, even if it's something like he's going to try to use, like a carbon fiber or liquid metal or some new display process, while that might eventually scale, the bottom line is, unfortunately, Amazon and Samsung will come up and snap those, and they're going to sell them to those companies because they know they can sell them in 200 million units a year, and, and the essential phone will not. So by the time he wants to scale, he's going to have to use components which are not differentiated. And so this is going to create a real problem because... He's either going to stay niche, which is fine, but that's not what he wants to do. But that's essentially where he's heading. And so at that point, you know, if he can build a successful brand and and, and keep in mind, that's the key here is is you must build a successful global brand of the likes of Apple, the likes of Samsung and like Huawei is doing. You need to be a global recognized brand in order to, to get the scale he wants. That's his fundamental challenges. Can this company become one that's a household name that's a brand on par with Apple and Samsung and all of these companies that have very recognized and trusted brands names and if he can do that then he start to move to scale but that's table stakes for what he wants to do and that's going to be really hard now to your second question which is if he creates a nice kind of niche high-end brand that does you know sell you know only you know five to tens of millions or whatnot you know phones phones a year, then and then it becomes possible that if if he's got some assets and somebody like like Huawei or or Vivo or Oppo or or any number of of brands want to acquire that so that they've got that sort of brand in their portfolio and, and hope that that rises the rest of their products then that would make sense but you know like I said I find I find his strategy to be conflicting and I'm not sure how they deal with that especially 
again, right, when phones is sort of, it's one of those areas that we're, we're sort of moving on to. And again, my, my point is, as great as a premium experience as that's going to be, he's always going to be stuck with the the challenges that Android and the self it has. And again, as that gap widens, unfortunately, as great of a piece of hardware he creates in a six, seven hundred, eight hundred dollar device, it's unlikely that it's going to be competitive with iOS. And this comes to the point, right? He could also end up being acquired by either Amazon or Microsoft because they also want a foothold into the premium Android device market, isn't it? Yeah, I just think, you know, honestly, again, premium, honestly, at, at almost every price point, brand really matters. I mean, I think you can't get over the reality that companies that sold to the low end, their goal was always to create a brand and move up. Now, only a few companies have actually done that, right? So brand really matters at all levels. Even customers that are spending 40 and $50 at a phone in emerging markets, you might, we might not think that's a lot of money, but for them, you know, that could be four months of income. And so they're not going to take a risk on something that's just going to break and fail in a week or two. So you got to, so brand matters at every price point, but obviously it matters exponentially more at the high end. That's just where this is a really, really hard road for Andy Rubin to go down when the high end is occupied by two players who don't seem to be seeding ground at all in the high end. In fact, you know, fascinatingly, we just got a bunch of data in that suggests even Samsung is starting to reacquire brand status and brand share in China in the high end. This is something that they had completely lost. And it looks now like consumer sentiment is is turning a little bit back towards Samsung in the high end, even parts of China, which two years ago, we were just we were laughing at how much they were bleeding market share to companies like like Huawei in particular. And now we're starting to see the signs that that sentiment around Samsung is even changing back in the high end toward in China. So I think, again, it just it just shows you what brand means in that segment and that consumers want to know they're getting something really, really quality, something that they're proud to, to carry around. And that's going to be, honestly, his biggest challenge at every price, he says, is just where the brand is. Because the hardware, like I said, can be amazing and can be competitive, but that itself doesn't make you a brand. But again, he's always going to be burdened by the software gap that exists between Android and iOS. And of course, coming to the most interesting topic of the day, what's Google's AR and VR roadmap heading in 2017 then? So they're really at this point more focused around VR, which you know again I'm 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 somewhat somewhat conflicted by because it, it does seem like we're going to now see AR thanks to what Apple's doing with with AR kits really really sort of go mainstream in a big way and I'm I'm, I'm again I'm not sure what what Android's answer to this is going to be in the next 12, 18 months, perhaps even longer. So they've got to play in VR because, you know, they've got Daydream. There's a there's sort of a growing up critical mass around headsets that now support Daydream. But again, that that by itself is is honestly not a gigantic opportunity, especially in, in the short run. It might be someday, but that's not a gigantic opportunity. I think the winds have changed because of what Apple did with ARKit. And now the real big question is, because because again, those are things that regular humans will do on a regular basis. Most people are not buying, even at $100, these headsets to go and live in VR and do things. That's a very, It's a very, very small, and even the forecasts for VR headsets, including these low-end ones, is still in the low tens of millions, right? Even going through to, 20, to 2020. So that's not a big market. AR is really, I think, the thing. And, and Google did not show much to anything around that, right? They've had the Tango phones. Those went nowhere. They've got zero critical massive developers doing anything with AR on Android. And that, again, that's going to continue over the next couple of years because it does seem like almost the, the bulk of AR development is going to go to iOS because of ARKit. And the difference being that even with their VR play, 
you know, it's heavily dependent on, again, another piece of hardware that you stick on your face. Whereas AR through the phone makes a lot of sense because you already have the device and now you're just creating a compelling reason to now bring the outside world and overlay the digital in it using your smartphone or, or your tablet. So from an adoption standpoint, from a consumer adoption standpoint, it makes a lot more sense that AR is going to go mainstream through the smartphone. Whereas Google's sort of VR play was always, well, we're, we're going to go this way and it's going to go mainstream through these headsets. And even Microsoft's AR play is kind of the similar way, like HoloLens and, and the mixed reality solutions they're bringing assumed that the masses would go right to headset. The reality is they're going to go through the phone. So it's a little bit unclear what, what Google's AR strategy is because they spent a little bit more time with VR. But like I said, this is if, again, if I'm right that they've sort of moved priorities away from Android, it's going to be really hard to catch up from, from an AR standpoint on them because, again, all of the developers that are trying to do something unique and innovative are going to focus on iOS. And what they bring to Android is going to be built for the lowest common denominator, which is an $80 or $50 very low-powered Android phone. So that's going to be a challenge. So I, I'm not sure what their AR play is. They spent a little more time with VR, but we'll have to see. I mean, But at, the, at this point in time, it's probably not going to be anything until next Google I.O., you know, next May, that we see some advancements around AR, again, outside of what I think Qualcomm is going to try to enable and be able to do. But that's, again, you kind of have to now look at what Qualcomm's devices will do for AR differently than Android as well, which, which is, again, just another bit of fragmentation. I saw, I just want to add this one point before we take a break, is that, interestingly, Google owns part of Niantic Labs, which actually owns Pokemon Go, which is a very successful AR game. But for some reason, they don't seem to be picking up the key lessons that they have learned from Niantic's success with Pokemon Go. So anyway, we'll take a break and we'll come back. <laughs> 